a morning routine? Well, I guess I should ask, do you have a really great morning routine that makes you feel strong and powerful and ready to take on the day? If you don't, then I got to tell you about our pre-order gift for Girl Stop Apologizing. If you grab the book before it comes out, meaning anytime between now and March 12th, and you go to girlstopapologizingbook.com and enter your proof of purchase, we're sending you a freebie a 15-minute video on my own morning routine and how I built it, as well as a PDF workbook that you can download and print out to create your own morning routine. How do you start with intention? How do you do something for your faith, for your focus, for your body, for your heart? These are the steps that I took to getting healthy both emotionally and physically. And if you don't already have a routine that you love, I think you're really going to love this. So if you were going to grab the book anyway, you may as well do it in advance and get a little freebie. Girl, stop apologizing book.com. Go get the good stuff. Hey all, Dave Hollis here. Welcome to this week's episode of the Rise Together podcast. We thought we would do something a little less conventional on this week's episode. There was a time in the not-too-distant past when Rachel Hollis was traveling out of town and I, Dave Hollis, was the solo host of our morning show. Morning show, you say? Yes. Rachel and I, on the regular, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Central, host something called the Start Today Morning Show. And without her, there was no banter that normally takes place in our mornings. Instead, I decided to take the opportunity of being alone to actually run through a little bit of what I'm writing for my book that I'm turning in uh, in just a moment. So we have five days, five excerpts, and five opportunities to teach on something that in some way got in my way as a man, because the whole book is about how men have tended to get in our own way. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy these excerpts from the Start Today Morning Show. And if you want to hear a little more of what I'm talking about or what normally Rachel and I are talking about together, join us on her Instagram or her Facebook Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Central. Enjoy. Hi, guys. I'm Rachel Hollis. And I'm Dave Hollis. And we're married. For like 14 years. And together for 16. We have kids. Four kids. Which is like a thousand kids. We've also been foster parents to four kids as well. We're running a business together. We do a lot of things. That is a lot of things. (laughs) But we feel like it's possible, we know it's possible, to have an exceptional relationship regardless of the stresses you have in your life. That's why we decided to do a podcast together. It's called Rise Together. So if you want some tips and tricks on how we kind of get through all the things. This is it. Come on down. Here we go. Extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Before we even get to what these words mean, spoiler alert, if you don't want an exceptional life for yourself, if you don't want to grow and become all that you can be in the marrow of your bones, it's just not going to happen. You'll never get as far as you might doing any of this for anyone but yourself. You and you alone have to feel the call on your macho man heart for a life that's better than the one that you already have or you're not going anywhere, or at least not as far as for as long as sustained a period of time. 
Sure, there are short-term blips where you might show up for your life here or there because outside stimulus allows it. But for those who are interested in the long game, it's gotta come from within. And frankly, for me, that has been easier said than done. Henry Ford said it best, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. It's a quote that I often use. It's so simple and so incredibly powerful once you get your head around it. You have to choose that you want more. You have to decide in wanting an exceptional life that you and you alone can push yourself for reaching for something bigger. Self-help guru Wayne Dwyer, Wayne Dwyer hits it a bit more on the nose, but the point is still as powerful. Be miserable or motivate yourself. Whatever has to be done, it is always your choice. Yikes. It begs a question of who you're turning to for motivation. If it's anyone other than the face you see in the mirror, you will never get as far. That's what it is, this idea of extrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. The former is the notion of being motivated from within, the latter from being motivated by things outside of you. As a person who for most of my life was driven by extrinsic things, grades, trophies, year-end reviews, promotions, and pay, those things were dependent on an outside force showing up to motivate me, to push me to have a greater life. That meant that they were intermittent and inconsistent, and ultimately, they yielded the power of how I was prodded to show up for my life to outside things that were outside of my control. When I found myself stuck in a funk on the bridge between my 30s and 40s, the externally motivating factors that took a break in my life, all of a sudden landed me in a rut. Good times. Consistent fuel versus sporadic fuel. That my extrinsically motivated self was dependent on outside forces to kick me in the rear. When they weren't there, I devolved into a version of myself that I wasn't as proud of. Extrinsic motivation coming and going over time was an accomplice in a malaise that I felt stuck in. It wasn't until I was able to turn my motivation to something that I needed for my marriage I wanted or the kind of dad I wanted to be or the kind of human I wanted to be that the shift from outside to inside changed the frequency and the consistency of that motivation. Intrinsic motivation is a constant. It doesn't depend on who or what shows up in your life and that regularity creates the momentum that I needed and that you ultimately will need for growth. The lie, everyone is thinking about what I am doing. Here's a gift. Nobody is thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. It's not an indictment on the people in your life. It's just a truth about the human condition. We are all worried about ourselves. And any reaction we have to other people tends to be a reaction that's a reflection of our own insecurities. If someone has a problem with something you're doing, it's likely that they're challenged by it feel insecure because of it, are jealous of your willingness to chase after it, or are frustrated that your belief in yourself creates an awareness of their disbelief in their own abilities to break away from convention. This isn't to say that you might have some folks who have legitimate concern for the choices that you're making and how those choices fuel you or don't. You know when you have people whose motives are in your best interest and pure. You should listen to those people. I'm not talking about that small percentage of good people that really know you in your heart, that really know you and the desires and motives of your soul. That's deep. I'm talking about the collective they and the worry of letting them down that tends to keep us inside our comfort zone, that tends to keep us from reaching 
for more that tends to challenge our motivation. When I knew it was time to leave the Walt Disney Company, the biggest barrier to my leaving was the worry of what other people would think. I was walking away from something that made so much sense to them in this world, and I operated in it for something that didn't play by their rules. The idea that I could believe that what was better for me could exist outside the construct of what they had given value to and what they had committed their lives to was hard for them to appreciate and hard for me to challenge. I remember so clearly the sleepless nights before I went into and told the senior leadership about this decision that I made. I was certain they'd be angry. I was certain they'd be disappointed or worse. Let's see, I'm gonna skip down a little bit. My bosses had a great reaction. Uh, I'm gonna skip the part where I tell the story of their reaction. Their reaction were a complete departure from the worst case scenario I'd created in my mind. Well, of course, I'd like to think that they were disappointed on some level to lose a talented contributor. Their concern in hearing about my departure was not as much as it was a continuity of how are we going to keep this thing going with a person who can replace him. It wasn't about me. It was just as transactional as it should have been. They're running a business and I let the emotion of my, pers my personal relationships and my own insecurities cloud the objectivity that they could apply to my departure. You see, ego is a funny thing. There's a part of us that has to believe that if we were to leave a company or leave a relationship or leave a post in this life, that people we leave behind will be devastated for the void that we leave in our wake. We have to believe on some unconscious level that the entire operation will come crashing down if the contributions we've been making aren't available once they're gone. It gives us a sense of self-worth. It makes us feel like the things that we're doing, that makes us feel like the things that we're doing are worthy of our time. Three months after I left, I can promise you this. I am missed by the people who are important in my life personally, but I am not missed and they were not thinking about me. Defining your operating principles. When I worked at the Walt Disney Company, I had 12 jobs over 17 years. That meant 11 times there were a group of people pulled into a conference room with some degree of anxiety as they waited on the news of who their new leader was going to be. After the second or third change, I realized it was taking entirely too long, most of my engagement with that team to get them to a place where they understood who I was, how I led, what I expected of them, and how they did their job, and what kind of culture I was hoping to have in the department or division. I needed a way to fast track the getting to know you portion of my time with new teams, and I decided that if I could create a cheat sheet that could accelerate the process, it would be a win on all sides. So I did just that. I made a list of what I call operating principles, and in the very first meeting with my new team, I walked them through them so they could get to know me, the sense of what kind of team I was looking to have. And every time I moved into a new job, I took a look at the list to see if there was anything I needed to tweak or change based on the experience I just came out of. If you looked at my first list and my last one, they do look remarkably similar because at their core, these are the principles, these are the reflections of the truths of my life, the truths of who I want to be today and who I'm reaching to be tomorrow. As I look at this list of operating principles now, I took the same list of the Hollis Company team when I first came on, and it's the same list I take every new employee through when they join. 
I can see that each principle is born out of a time when I behaved in a way that was not living up to a standard that created what I was hoping for. And so the trial by error of my 25 years in the entertainment business created a roadmap that is now the path of least resistance and the path that became my list of truths. Number one, work to live, don't live to work. If you don't do something that you're passionate about while making time for your family and yourself, you'll never be successful. Right? I just talked at the beginning of this live stream about having a very clear idea of what your destination is, but also making sure you understand where you have to put boundaries or a, a, a block to keep you from sliding off the road. If I don't maintain a focus on my family, I don't maintain a focus on living for my life and not living for my work, I will be a failure uh, both to my family and to uh, actually having the kind of life that I hope for. Uh, number two, find a mentor you trust who will champion your growth in the organization and in life, right? Like I know that I don't know the things I need to know to get to my destination. And here's news for you, uh, sorry to break this to you. You do not know what you need to know to get to the destination that you're going to. You need people in your life who are already at the destination or have gone past the destination so that they can tell you about the pitfalls and traps you are likely to fall into if you are not aware of their existing. Number three, take assignments that put you out of your comfort zone. Growth happens outside of your comfort zone. You cannot be fulfilled if you are not growing. We are working now in a team that every single day has us doing a new thing. But for all of my teams over all of my years, the idea of pushing yourself into things that can make you grow because you don't know them, that is a value of mine. That is a value that I have to remind myself of when I look at my own list because it's scary when I think about the future that I am envisioning. It will introduce things that I do not know how to do. It is going to make me uncomfortable to be put into places outside of my comfort zone, and I'm gonna do it because that's where growth lives. I'm gonna have to, it's part of my operating principles. Number four, do more than one thing with your career. PR, research, marketing, sales, a renaissance man or woman is more valuable, marketable, and relied upon in an organization. I want people in my teams to be open to the possibility that the competency that they are known best for may not be the thing that they do two years from now. I want them to always be hungry for what else they might have as a thing that they could add as a tool to their tool belt so that they can grow into being a leader of a bigger, broader organization and can, when problems show up in the organization, be someone who's got an eye to and an ear to how their now more varied experience can uh, act as a solution provider in that environment. Number five, develop initiatives, represent their value, update the organization as you progress, be a humble champion of and create visible momentum for the value that you deliver for the team. I don't like it when I have people on the team that leave me wondering what they're up to. I want to know that, hey, you know what, if you think about this person, you can associate them immediately with this value that they deliver. It was something for me as I was hoping to be promoted or hoping to be considered for new jobs that I 
humbly made sure that people knew that I was pushing this initiative for the company, that I was delivering this value for the company. If you're interested in getting from where you are to where you want to go, someone needs to know you're doing the work. And you need to find a way to represent that work so that you can, in that recognition, be given more opportunity. Number six, surround yourself with strong people. Let them shine. Find people who are better than you. When you find them, give them credit. On the flip side, uh, focus on how your efforts can accelerate your boss's promotion and not your own. Your boss is solely responsible for giving you a promotion often, and you'll find that you're promoted faster when you do, right? Finding great people, there's this weird thing in the human condition that has us insecure about bringing people in that might be smarter than us or better than us. They could show the stuff that we don't know. If you are, are, are so worried about being uh, revealed as a person who doesn't know everything, you're putting a limit on how far you can go. You have to find people that are better than you. And if you're stuck in a job and you're wondering why you're not being promoted, but you haven't gotten up every day for the last month and thought about how you could actively get your boss promoted, I have the answer for you. Your boss is the one who's going to decide whether you get promoted or not. And if that person, that man or woman thinks that you have been an asset that got them promoted, they will reciprocate that even if it's on an unconscious basis. Number seven, deliver honest feedback regularly, both up and down, deploying radical candor in a considerate way. Be genuine and empathetic to how you deliver it and how you hope to have it received. So a lot of times there's a taboo around being honest. There's a taboo around giving feedback. And the reality is if you don't, open yourself up to the possibility of hearing how other people are receiving your work, or if you can't find a way to provide feedback to the people on your team who are helping you get this job done, helping you head to that destination, you will not actually get there faster, right? They just that you, you won't. So you've got to be open to feedback and you've got to find a way to be honest in real time. Rachel Hollis and I, we are 100% finding like the rhythm of working together in real time. That rhythm is a thing that has required more radically candid conversations in the last nine months than ever before in our life. And if we were uncomfortable challenging each other in a empathetic and considerate way, we would not be able to go do all of the things that we wanna do. We would not be able to do them. Number eight, act with integrity then don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. But do, do 360s, ask for feedback from people with mastery in areas that you want to grow and understand how to be better. If you are acting with integrity and someone is having a problem with the way you're operating, that is a problem that they are having, not a problem that you are having. So you have to be comfortable in making choices that are a representation of your integrity and who you are as a person and then let it go. If somebody has a problem with you, it ain't no thing. It's their thing. Uh, but do 360s. I did a 360 every single year for the last 20 years. And a 360 is just asking people who are your peers, people who are your superiors, and people who are your subordinates to give you feedback on the way that you are showing up 
in the world. This is about your personal brand. If you're thinking that you wanna be received in a way that these operating principles should have you received, but it's not working, you need to know that so you can make a tweak on that. Number nine, be a solution provider. Understand the objectives of the customer, whether that customer is internal or external and meet needs to that end. When you are looking at your map, and you're wondering, how am I going to get there? However far away there is. The answer almost every time will come back to what solution you can provide for a customer. And I'm not saying like a paying customer even. You may be a stay-at-home mama who is interested in having a more exceptional relationship with your husband or children. And the question needs to be, how do I show up better to the customer, the solution for the customer, and the customer could be you. How do I sit in self-care and make sure I'm taking care of me? The customer could be your husband. Is there something that I could do to be supportive of or could be your wife supportive of her? It could be your kids. Is there something that they need? And I'm not saying give them what they want. Here clearly, the customer solution may in fact be something that your children do not want at all, like structure like discipline, but they need it. So you need to focus on what the solution is that your customers need. And number 10, the commitment to truth. Demand that your teams, whether they're family teams, professional teams, demand your teams represent problems in an environment that does not penalize them for having problems, but do insist that they come with solutions. The only time anyone ever gets upset is when they are surprised buy an outcome, manage expectations honestly. I am done reading. The bottom line with that is you have to make sure if you're married and your partner is struggling and in that struggle, he wants to, she wants to talk to you honestly about the struggle and you judge them when they come to you with that truth, they ain't coming back. They're not coming back with truth. They're not gonna bring up their problems if when they bring them to you, you respond with judgment and condemnation. Now, it doesn't mean that they might not need to apologize. They might not need to go to the therapy. They might not need, they might you know, need to do a whole bunch of stuff. But if you wanna get to where you're going, you need to change the way you think about receiving truth so that you can continue to be in a conversation of truth. There will be a handful of moments that you will look back on in your life that you can assign meaning to for having had a role in fundamentally changing your life. When you met your partner, your decision to take a job that ended up propelling you forward, etc. This talk, this decision we made that my wife made to wade into and have a hard, hard conversation about the trajectory of our lives was one of those moments for me. Pause, just to set the scene, we went on a vacation. I drank all of the alcohol on the island. I was really struggling with my purpose in life, my um, not feeling like I was using my potential. And I was in a rut. And this vacation brought out the very worst in me while she was at the very height of becoming the most awesome human being on, on the planet. 
The day after Hawaii, we sat on our bed and Rachel worked against every ounce of muscle memory in her being. We're both recovering codependence and confrontation on this scale isn't something either of us had, had mastered, but the stakes were too high to worry about that. This was going down. She laid it out in such simple terms, but those terms rocked me to my core. I'm quoting her. I'm going to reach for a better version of myself every day. I'm going to do it whether you decide to do it or not. Personal growth is one of the most important values in my life, so I'm going to pursue it every single day. Are you, Dave, going to grow every day? Are you going to choose to grow every day, or are you going to tread water? If you aren't growing and I am, in three months, we will have much less to talk about on a date night. In six months, will we still be making out? In a year, will we still be going on dates? In three years, will we still be married? Hello? What? Dagger to the heart. Someone should have yelled clear and uh, uh, before they hit me with the paddles to the chest, it was that fast. And yes, through a pool of I'm embarrassed, I'm sobbing this much man tears, I realized it was up to me to make a choice. Did I want to grow or did I want to die? Did I want to grow into who I knew I could be? Did I want to grow into who God made me to be? Did I want to have the marriage I wanted and be the father I wanted to be? Mahatma Gandhi said, very simply, the future depends on what we do in the present. Was I doing all the things I needed to do? Did I want to have the life I know my kids and my wife deserve? Of course I did. I always did, but I'd lost my way. But now I knew more clearly than ever because of the love of this woman, I knew for the first time because of having been forced to visualize the byproduct of my inaction, the future that sat in front of me, if I didn't take this seriously, was going to require massive action to change it. Here's the thing, even in our most likely scenario world where I didn't make changes, living in a marriage where we drifted apart was a worst case scenario for me. I went further. I visualized in vivid detail because I needed the leverage of the most brutal things I could think of to get my ass off the mat. Not having my best friend by my side. Switching weekends with who had kids once we separated. Continuing to withdraw without my right hand there to hold up a mirror. My visualization went super dark. I saw the caricature of an overweight, unshaven, barely sober, lonely version of myself if I didn't snap out of whatever it was that was holding me back. It made me sad. It made me angry. It made me feel shame and disappointment. It was just the thing that I needed. It was the greatest showcase of love. And as the kids say, I was shook. It's cavalier to say that I didn't ever think about us getting divorced. I honestly hadn't. And I'm going to bet that most people don't give a ton of thought to it before they find themselves past the point of no return and wake up to see that they've become something irreconcilable. The notion of irreconcilable differences as a rationale for divorce was a term I'd heard but never given much thought to. It frankly seemed like a convenient term for people who didn't want to work hard enough on staying together. How naive of me. When I'm honest, I can see now that we were in the earliest stages of a path that leads down a road of irreconcilable differences. 
where a couple doesn't know each other anymore, don't, doesn't share the same values for their life or their relationship, and only by the grace of God and the love of my wife, we were wading into and confronting all the things while reconciliation was very much still a thing that we could accomplish together. Don't get me wrong. I had been a good father. I had been a good husband. But I careened into a slump that threatened everything that I'd built and that we'd built together. To put an even finer point on it, I'd been good, but they deserved great. I'd been good, but they deserved exceptional. The blessings of leverage, that vision of my future where I'm not as close to my wife and kids, that created urgency for massive action. It forced harder conversations with my wife. It required harder conversations with myself in the mirror. Desperate times, desperate measures kind of stuff. And as it relates to this chapter, it opened me up to personal development as a thing I might need as a means to get out of the rut. I could just puke thinking about it. There is a chapter in the book that I am writing that I have to turn in in a month's worth of time, uh, a month, it's not even a month, March 10th, uh, called uh, The Lie Is I Know What You've Been Through. I Know What You've Been Through. Um, And in the chapter, I just tell a few different stories of the way that I, as a person who was born and raised in a super homogenous community. I grew up in Southern California in a town where everyone looked the same and acted the same and dressed the same and voted the same and loved the same and uh, were the same, the basic opposite of what <laughs> we're trying to create in this community. And, uh, and I thought that I had a pretty good handle, arrogantly, naively, ridiculously on Um, what it was like, what it must be like to go through life and live life as someone who is not like me, someone who is a woman or who votes differently than me or who is gay or who is not a Christian or who lives outside of the United States or um, on and on and on. And it wasn't until I found myself in community with people who were actually unlike me that I realized how ridiculous it was to think that I knew what it was like to have gone through what you have been through. So when we were going in our uh, adoption journey, we started the adoption of Noah by um, thinking we were going to adopt through uh, Ethiopia. And uh, that the like attempt to adopt through Ethiopia came because there were, there were a couple at the church that we were going to, who had successfully done it. It felt like, um, hey, if you did it, we can do it. And so we started a process that ended up, um, I don't know, for two years, feeling like the thing we were doing. And then it just wasn't the thing uh, that ended up working out because there was some tough stuff that was happening uh, in Ethiopia with trafficking children. So our State Department stopped making adoptions available. They wouldn't make adoptions available anymore. But because of the thinking that we were going to adopt from Ethiopia, we decided to find a church that uh, was intentionally multicultural, that was intentionally going to put us in community with people of color because we were in the scenario where we adopted from Ethiopia, going to have a child who had black skin. And 
Uh, we wanted to know what we had to know that we didn't know about raising a baby of color in 2020 or 19 or 18 or whatever it might be. Uh, and also just like how we could stay connected to the things culturally that would be important. And in a, in a crazy way, I mean, I felt, I feel naive in a lot of the things that I talk about in this chapter. Like I thought I had a pretty good handle on race. I thought that like, oh yeah, I understand what it's like to be a person of color in America in the 21st century. And we got into this church and for the first time in our lives for real, though we had people that were casually in our lives that had an experience uh, you know, from their race story. Um, I had never really had friends that were different, that were uh, people who had had a life experience that was informed um, by the color of their skin or by their sexual orientation or any, like truly anything. And around the time that we were in that church, there were just a string of things that were happening in the news, particularly around people being shot that were, you know, consistently people of color that I think would have otherwise been something that would have just run through my newsfeed, but that because I was sitting in a chair next to a person who'd become my friend who was processing that news in a totally, totally different way, we got into conversations that we would have never, ever gotten into if not for the fact that I was in community with those people. Um, the, the last uh, opportunity that I had inside of the Walt Disney Company when it came to what they called employee resource groups uh, was acting as the chief ally for the pride group, the group of uh, people who identify as being gay inside of the Walt Disney Company. Uh, they were looking for someone who was not that to um, be a part of the community so that I might be an ally on behalf of them. And in a crazy, crazy way, I mean, I've, I've, I have many friends who are now many things, which is awesome, but, um, <laughs> I put this tattoo on my arm in part because I was so proud of uh, what felt like, you know, God calling me into an opportunity to be an ally on behalf of um, people who were different from me and, and, and in a weird way. Um, I worked at the Walt Disney Company for 17 years. I um, have been a person of faith that whole time. I talked pretty openly about being someone who um, went to church. And I can tell you that I had more conversations about my faith and about God with people inside of the gay and lesbian community because of being an ally and standing in a conversation with them about what it was like to live life inside of the company. And, uh, and so I got this tattoo. I got it because uh, I wanted to have uh, a reminder on the outside of my skin, a reminder for my boys that um, they have a responsibility of understanding some of what they have in the privilege department. They don't have to think about some of the things that my friend in that multicultural church had to think about when, I'll, I'll tell you one of the stories. It's, I mean, it's crazy. And if it, I'm going to say it right now, if someone decides to write something that's racist in the comment section, you'll just be banned forever. Thanks for coming. But, um, in the midst of these shootings happening in this church, and not in this church, but as we were in this church, these shootings are happening on the news. 
And my friend who happened to be African-American asked me a question that had never run into my brain in the history of my life. He said, have you ever thought about how you will have to have a conversation with your children about how they need to react to being pulled over? And I said, no, what are you talking about? If I get pulled over, I just get pulled over. And he said, well, I, as the father of younger black children who are going to get their driver's licenses soon, have had to have conversations so that they understand the things that they should do to make sure that nothing, you know, is misinterpreted during their being pulled over. And the, I, the, the, like the reality that like I had never had to have that conversation with my kids and he did is part of what um, privilege is. Whether you want to agree with the idea that privilege exists or not, doesn't and that, that you don't want to or might not be um, a person who thinks that way, that's okay. You're, you're welcome to as well. And yep, you can, you can write that all lives matter or blue lives matter, but uh, honestly, that's not the point <laughs> of the story. The reality is, Somebody had to have a different kind of experience in their life than in my life. And that um, recognition came from sitting in community with someone who was different. And so um, part of the hope in us sitting in a community that is different, right, is that maybe we'll be exposed to some of the experiences that people who are different from us have had in a way that makes us conscientious of the world maybe looking one way for us and maybe looking one way for someone else. Um, and it doesn't, just because these things exist, like um, I, I, I want to be careful with how I say anything because I'm just not an expert in how to talk about all of this stuff. It's such a it's such a tough thing, but I, I do think it's important that we find a way to lean into and have these kinds of conversations so that we can actually um, come together and like kind of round the sharp edges of our hearts and think differently about the benefits of community and empathy that shows up from just appreciating other people's points of view. Uh, we start this live stream almost every day with this idea that we don't act the same or look the same, love the same, dress the same, uh, vote the same, in part because we want everyone to be in a community like this. I, like People disagreeing isn't totally okay. How you choose to disagree, completely, completely a different thing. So anyway, so I got a tattoo. Uh, I, uh, I'm getting another tattoo. I'm getting another tattoo. The tattoo that I'm going to get that will live just <clears throat> below it is, uh, the, it'll, it'll be the words, a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships were built for uh, as a reflection of the uh, awesome growth that's happened over the course of the last two years worth of time. Uh, trusting that growth is what happens in the chaos of the waves. If you are willing to push away from the harbor, you will be the beneficiary of it, even though, and especially as, it's hard. It's gonna be hard, it will be hard. 
Hey, you guys, if you like the Rise or Rise Together podcast, you're going to love my monthly live coaching series. What did you just say? I'm doing a coaching series. I'm, I'm like your favorite coach, but with hair extensions and eyelash extensions and a pension for Beyonce. What kind of coaching are you coaching? Okay, thank you for asking. There's actually two different classes. One is life coaching. Those are for people who want to work on their relationship, their health, their personal, all the personal stuff. And then there's something I'm really excited about, business coaching. I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years. I'm really proud of the company that I've built, and I want to share that wisdom with you. So if you own a small business and you want to dig into how to do social media, how to find new clients, how to grow your revenue base. This is how we're going to do it. I bet they can get more info at thehollisco.com. You sure are right, buddy. You can watch videos about what the coaching series is all about, how you join in, and what is included with your membership.